Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Regeneration Podcast. I'm Jay. And uh, as always, I'm here with my buddy Isaac. Um, and today we're talking about lighthearted topics. Yes. Hell. The greatest topic of them all. Christmas topic. Christmas topic. Totally. Yeah. I was talking to a friend of mine. She's a college student and she's not a Christian. And uh, we were talking back and forth about several things. And she she mentioned this to me. She said, you know, because, you know, we're always telling her, man, we love you. God loves you. Whether you believe that or not, um, that's, that's true. And she said, it's hard for me to believe that if there is a God and he does love me, that's really hard to believe because simultaneously you also say that this God who loves me is going to send me to hell if I don't cross all the T's and dot all the I's of Christianity. I think that that statement represents so much of the tension. How can God be good and loving and also send people to a crazy, dark, painful place like hell? Mm. That just doesn't compute, doesn't add up. Um, how do you see that tension playing out? We've inherited an understanding of hell that is pretty much divorced from the grand story or grand narrative of scripture. So it's almost like an alternate version of hell that we have in our head. Um, and so uh, one of the, you know, the best books that you and I have read on this is, is a book by Joshua Ryan Butler, who's our guest today, who really kind of deconstructs the image of hell that we have in our, in our brains and kind of forces it back into its proper place in the scriptures. So like Isaac said, that's exactly um, the topic of our conversation today with Joshua Ryan Butler, who is the author of um, the book Skeletons in God's Closet that we'll be digging into. So thanks for listening, and let's jump right into the conversation. Hey, Josh, how you doing? Good. Good to be with you guys. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Hey, you know, uh, we are talking about everyone's favorite topic today, hell. And Josh, yeah, you... great Christmas dinner conversation, getting <laughs> yeah. everyone ready for the holidays. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Just light, light Christmas fair, really. Um, yeah. And you wrote a, a phenomenal book um, a couple of years ago called Skeletons in God's Closet. We'll talk about that more toward the end of the podcast. But um, one, I guess two questions and one just to start for you, Josh. One, we would love to hear how you got to where you are in terms of how you think about hell which is such a difficult topic and really a topic that creates so much angst for both followers of Jesus as well as those who are just trying to figure things out and searching. Um, so we'd love to hear some of that story. How did you get to where you are with um, your understanding of hell? And maybe connected to that, you've got a story early on in your book where you talk about uh, an interaction you had very early in your journey with Jesus um, with a friend of yours in college. So um, tell us tell us more about, about your journey and, and about that interaction. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, I remember being back in college and I kind of had this radical encounter with Jesus or turn my life upside down or maybe better yet right side up, you know, and I remember coming back to my dorm room and telling my roommate, like, dude, you'll never believe it. Like, God is so good. He's totally rocked my world. He's changed my life. Like, man, Jesus is so good. And he listened, you know, for a minute. And then when I finished his very first question back to me was like, so do you think I'm going to hell now? <laughs> and um, I found for a lot of people, I think it can be kind of similar where it, it may not be a question some of us are asking, but it's going to be a question that friends or those around us are asking, sometimes even family members. And uh, we're often just kind of at a loss of like, well, I don't know. I just know that God's good. And um, so there can be that. But I've also found over the years that over time, uh, my friends' questions became my questions too. You know, I kind of started to grapple with them and go, well, how do I make sense of this? Man, Jesus is first in my life. I, I'm falling in love with the Bible. I'm reading it. Um, but there's some some pieces here that I'm, I'm trying to grapple with. How does this kind of reconcile or fit with the goodness of God? And so one of the things I, I think coming out of that is just finding that I think many of us fear that God is sort of hiding these skeletons in the closet, that there are these tough topics and if we were to really open up the closet doors, kind of open up scripture and take a closer look, I think the fear is that we might find God's not truly good or worthy of our trust. And yet I've found that because we often have a caricature of what's actually going on in the biblical story. Uh, so one of the things that, you know, I 
trying to do in the book and, and want to do is just trying to offer some paradigm shifts that have helped me over the years. Um, now it's been about 15, 20 years later, about 20 years later. And, uh, and just some of the paradigm shifts that have really helped me, I think, reclaim uh, and reframe like a healthier, biblical, robust understanding that's kind of aligned with the dominant historical tradition of the church. And it's coming out of the Bible, but it's, it's uh, a picture that arises because of the goodness of God. Um, rather than in spite of it or in contradiction to it. And so that's kind of my biggest hope in this topic, these conversations, not so much to be the answer man who's got it all figured out or for us to have all the right answers, but it's more that we could reclaim a greater confidence uh, that God is good, like in his very bones. One of the ideas that's core to Christianity is something that you, you're stating is that God is is good, and we believe that God is not just good some of the time, but He's good all of the time. Like it's mm. goodness is is bound up in His nature; it's who He is; it's essential to His being. Yeah. And so there's this idea that God is not only good, but He's good in everything He does. Then, totally. in some strange, bizarre sense, the Christian has to believe that even hell is good in in some sense, and and yeah. that like. That's a crazy claim for Christians to be making. I mean, you're the, you know, you're 21 years old on a college campus and, and someone asks you that similar question. So you think I'm going to hell and, you know, oh, well, hell's a good thing. And it just, it, it's, it's like, wh- where's that? So, so talk, talk into that because I think, I think actually in your book, one of your key points is that even hell is a good thing. Well, maybe first what you mentioned, you know, that, yeah, Christian orthodoxy, like the dominant historical Christian tradition, whether you are Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, like across the board, uh, would hold that God is life, light, and love, right? Like God's essence is good, and there's nothing that we can do, no matter how sinful or whatever we become, that, that, can, that we, can, we cannot act upon God so as to change the goodness of his core essence. We can't make God become other than the life, light, and love that he is in, 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 that he in his very essence is. So when we think about God's character and we look at some of these tough topics, I do think we need to uh, go in with the conviction um, that however we understand these, we have to see them as arising from the goodness of who God is and his character. And, and that may lead to some work of grappling. How does this fit? Um, and so as it relates to the hell conversation, yeah, I kind of opened in chapter one going, what is the story? What's the surrounding storyline that the topic of hell fits into? Um, and what I found is I think many people have a false or a caricature storyline and it tends to go something like this. The caricature tends to go, well, right now I live on earth. One day I'll die. And when I die, God's either going to send me up to heaven or down to hell. Right. And so it's what I would call like the earth now, heaven, hell later story. And there's a couple of problems with that, uh, story, but one, the big one I'd point to for, for here is just going like in that storyline, earth has no place in our eternal future with God and heaven and hell kind of had no place in our present experience here on earth. That's not the way that scripture actually talks about it. Uh, there's an example I use in the book that you can go say, I go to biblegateway.com or like an online Bible. Uh, if you type in the search feature, heaven, hell, and hit search, it's going to show you how many verses the two words appear together in. And most folks are shocked to discover, you know, I'll ask you how many times do you think heaven and hell appear together in scripture? And I'll often get like, ah, maybe a few hundred or something. And so most folks are shocked to find that the answer is zero. Like there are actually uh, no places in the biblical story that that heaven and hell appear together as kind of like these counterparts, these co-equal counterparts, which is how we tend to talk about them. Like heaven and hell, like one's yin, the other's yang, one's positive side of the battery, the other's negative side of the battery. Um, Scripture definitely talks about heaven, definitely talks about hell, but it doesn't talk about them in the same way that we tend to as like these counterparts. Um, but scripture does in the storyline say that heaven has a counterpart, only it's not hell, it's earth. Uh, if we use that same search feature, we type in heaven, earth, and hit search, and we, you know, we find that it's roughly 200 times, depending on which translation you use, it's about 200 times that heaven and earth appear together paired together throughout the biblical story. And so one of the first paradigm shifts I think we need to have is that the storyline is that God is on a mission to reconcile heaven and earth. God, in, in the Bible, he, he the storyline is that God creates a good heavens and a good earth, and uh, they're created with each other, for each other, in healthy relationship with one another. And then our sin, though, tears apart heaven and earth. It kind of ruptures that relationship they were intended for. So the whole kind of mission 
that God is on in Christ is to actually reconcile heaven and earth back together, to sort of bring back together what um, sin has torn apart. And that means that this mission of God to reconcile heaven and earth, it's, it's driven by the goodness of God. It's because he's actually out to redeem what sin and the destructive power of hell has, has sought to destroy. God's actually out to redeem it and bring it back together. One way we could frame God's mission is uh, God's on a mission to reconcile heaven and earth. Another way we could say that same thing is that God's on a mission to get the hell out of earth. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was waiting. I was waiting for you to to go there. That's the best line: is God's kicking the hell out of uh, earth. Yeah, like God is on a mission to get the hell out of earth. Only the funny thing is that phrase it actually works in both the caricature story and the gospel story, right? Like in the caricature story, it means God's on a mission to get us the hell out of earth, right? Like this earth is a mess and God's on a mission to kind of beam me up, Scotty, get me out of this place. You know, it's sort of an escapist storyline um, to just get the heck out of the, the gnarly stuff in our world. Uh, but in the gospel storyline, it's God is on a mission to get the hell out of us on earth. Like in this story, it's us. We have been the agents that have released the destructive power of hell in God's good world. And I think we see this in massive international scale things like uh, genocide and uh, sex trafficking and war and you know things that we would just all of us probably look at and go do these are destructive forces that are ravaging our world um, and I think we also see it though on very intimate personal levels uh, the vices of the human heart things like pride and lust rage and greed I explore in the the book how uh, scripture looks to these as sort of like the cracks through which hell makes its way into the world they're like our, our hearts it's out of that kind of the sparks that set god's good world aflame for a lot of people this is such a massive paradigm shift i know for me you know i grew up in a fairly fundamentalist sort of southern baptist church and nothing wrong with that and wonderful memories of my childhood growing up and it was a wonderful church but um, certainly when i think about what i learned about hell growing up uh, it really was the caricature that uh, the pairing was always presented as heaven or hell, and that those two um, realities almost coexist, and that they are also, like you said, the realities that coexist at the end of human life or at the end of human time. But what you're saying, one, biblically, the pairing that really matters in the biblical story is heaven and earth and not mm. the tearing apart and separation of some people go to heaven, some people go to hell, although that certainly is a biblical reality, but that the main crux of the story is the coming together of mm. heaven and earth, and, and that hell does play a part in that, but it plays um, a different part than what we've, uh, what we've always believed. The other paradigm shift that I think is so fascinating that you're— uh, proposing that is probably fresh and new to a lot of people. So I'd love to hear a little bit more. And you're explaining some of the pragmatics of it now, but um, this idea that heaven uh, and hell are not just future eternal realities, but that they are um, also present realities. And the reason I think that's such a big paradigm shift is that I grew up believing and being taught and embracing the, this idea that heaven and hell were simply locations. They were fixed locations that I would someday go um, at the end of time. But you're saying something a little different than that. Talk more about that uh, and just biblically sort of where you see that. Yes. Yeah, so um, we see right out of the gate in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And uh, there's one sense conceptually that the heavens are like up in the sky, right? It's kind of like it would be similar to our words for the, the sky and the land, the heavens and the earth. I think only the difference is, I think when we today, as sort of 21st century Westerners, when we think sky and land, we tend to think of just sort of raw, brute, material, physical substance. Uh, but in the Hebrew worldview and mindset, the heaven and earth, the sky and the land are spiritually charged, like with the presence and the purposes of God. And so uh, to start with kind of heaven and earth, the, the idea is, man, like heaven speaks to the place where God resides, where his manifest presence is and it's almost like you can think of it as almost like the spiritual uh fabric that's intertwined with the physical reality of our world kind of god's animating sustaining presence and so 
to say that there's been this rupture between God and humanity's relationship is is um, a, a similar concept to the idea that heaven and earth's relationship has, has become torn. Uh, the spiritual intimacy that our world, our creation was created for with God has been ruptured by sin. And so when we look at Jesus and his mission, uh, Jesus's mission is to establish, to bring the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, to sort of reconcile what sin has torn apart, to reestablish the rule and reign of, of his father through himself and the power of his spirit on earth. There's a, there's a picture here of kind of the, the force of the rebellion. Uh, the, I love there's a passage in James that talks about, you know, he's like, consider a great forest and how all it takes, you got this great forest that can be burned down and shred to a spark by just a single, you know, shred, shred to dust or cinders just from a single spark. And he goes, that's similar to the power of our tongue. Like our words can cut down others. They can tear down our own life and tear down other people. And he says, when we do that, when we unleash that kind of destruction, that wildfire destruction through our tongue and in the world, the, the tongue itself is set on fire by Gehenna, by hell, right? And so James is going, the way that the power of Gehenna, the power of hell makes its way into the world is actually through us, through our actions, through our tongue. Uh, so when you have that neighbor in the cubicle next to you at work, coworker who's kind of gossiping, <laughs> Or, you know, like, like, yeah, she's just being annoying, but, you know, she's also like breathing the flames of hell into the office place, you know, like, um, I, I, you know, I will rightly talk about bring heaven to earth here in Portland as it is in heaven or here, wherever you're at, you know, like seeing God's kingdom breaking. And um, that language I found has become more common. One of the observations I just want to make is sort of the flip side of that reality too, that hell breaks into earth too, right? Like um, the way that the enemy's destructive, divisive power breaks into God's good world is actually through us and our rebellion. So let me try to connect two two thoughts. Uh, I want to get to Gehenna, which you just brought up, but I want to go back because I think this is pretty important. We start off the story wrong, and we actually elevate the powers of hell because what we, what we say is that heaven and hell are are the kind of functionally different equal opposites. And so what I mean by that in Genesis, the layout of the creation account is showing day after day the creation of functionally different equal opposites. You have day, night, sun, moon, land, sea, man, woman, and and the beginning of that flow is heaven and earth. We tell the biblical story through a different narrative in that we think it's it's heaven and and hell. Um, and one, that makes hell the equal opposite to heaven, which um, what you're saying, hell is the intruder into God's good creation. So you have this beautiful heaven and earth, and the, important for the Christian story is it's created for human beings to flourish. This is why God hates the intrusion and the invasion of the virus, if you will, so much, is that he creates a world for human beings to flourish in, live wonderful, amazing, beautiful lives and Satan, sin, death, hell, they enter in and they wreak havoc. And the way they're let in and sort of like the surprise to the story is is by human beings. Human beings mm-hmm. welcome them in, them in and immediately in Genesis, it's, it's by eating fruit turns into the murder of a brother. Then it turns into the story of Lamech, a polygamous murderer who's trying to one-up God and sin spirals out of control. Then... I'm finally getting to the second point. I want to connect connect this to what you just brought up with Gehenna. The biblical story is telling the story of God pursuing people, then in turn they sin, and there is this, this motif that's so forgotten in Christianity of, of exile. It's going to east of Eden, and there's this pushing out um, by human beings from the presence of God. In one way, um, hell functions as the ultimate Gehenna, the ultimate exile, the ultimate removing of the garden. So can, can you talk about how we've, we're reading our Bibles through a lens that, that creates heaven and hell to be equal, and God's up there just saying, the second you mess up behaviorally, I've created a place to torture you forever. When in reality, he's created a place for human flourishing, and human beings again and again and again let in the powers, the dark, sinister forces behind the scenes to wreak havoc upon this good order. So, so can, can you can you talk about that exile flow and, and how it gets to Gehenna? Because 
our, our average listener probably James says Gehenna and they go, what, what, what is that? What does that even have to do, do with this? So, Oh yeah. Cause definitely, you know, exile is, I, I think, um, the right grid, you know, one of the right grids or categories to look at this through, you know, uh, that image of Adam and Eve kind of, um, distant from the garden, distant from the flourishing they were intended for because of the, the rebellion. Uh, another angle that comes out through is the history behind Gehenna. So uh, most times in the New Testament, we read the word hell. Uh, back in the Greek, it's, it's the Greek word Gehenna. Gehenna was an actual physical place just outside the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, so it wasn't down in the deep cavernous bowels of the earth. You know, it wasn't out in a galaxy far, far away. Uh, it was actually a place you could Google Maps, like just outside Jerusalem's walls. And it was a place with a dark and destructive history, um, one that speaks to kind of that exile theme. If we go back into the Old Testament, it's a place known there as the Valley of Hinnah. Uh, Gehenna is the transliteration of uh, Ge is the Hebrew for or the Greek for valley, and Hena is the transliteration of Hinnom. So um, it's a way of describing the Valley of Hinnom in the Old Testament. And this was a place where uh, it was infamous for where a child sacrifice took place. And it was sort of the epicenter of idolatry. Like when you read about them going to the high places and building asterisk poles and worshiping Baal and all these things. And it's the place where they would um, light the flames and burn their children in the fire, murder their children, uh, child sacrifice to, to other gods. And so the prophets in the Old Testament, they rail against Gehenna. They rail against the Valley of Hinnom going, God's just going like in Jeremiah, like never in Ezekiel, he's like never did I command such a thing, never did even such a detestable thing enter my mind that you do something so heinous. And it becomes almost like a symbol or a signpost of how corrupt the people of God have become. Uh, it becomes a signpost of their idolatry and their injustice. And so Gehenna was an actual location. It was a place, you know, kind of outside. And it becomes expanded. I, I think it's kind of almost like a metaphor imagery for the hope of the prophets. Because God is good, he's a good king. He's going to return to Jerusalem, even though the people are in exile now, that God's returning. He's going to come back to Jerusalem. He's going to establish his kingdom. Like Jerusalem will be like the capital from which his kingdom goes out into the earth. He's going to establish his kingdom. And he's going to kick the rebellion outside the city walls outside Jerusalem into Gehenna, like into the Valley of Hinnom, uh, the place where it started. So you can also have to see this picture visually, mostly of like uh, the flames of idolatry that the, the, the people ignited. Yeah, there was flames and they were lit by human hands, right? And almost the destructive idolatry and stuff that, that began in Gehenna had worked its way into Jerusalem. It was a sign of how corrupt things were. And the story that was ultimately one of hope in God's goodness, that God was going to come and redeem. And yet those who have aligned themselves against God and his goodness and the justice and holiness and everything of his kingdom, those who have set themselves unrepentantly against the good and righteous king are going to get booted out into exile, like outside the city in the Valley of Hinnom. There's this, uh, it's it's actually, it helps my brain when I think almost like in, in fairy tales or like Disney movies. So you picture a city, like this good city with a good king and there's city walls around it. And it's been um, invaded by evil and chaos and the good king comes and he re he reestablishes order and peace and harmony and in all these things inside of the city walls, and anyone who doesn't want to be a part of that goodness is then exiled outside of the city walls. So, I mean, literally, think of like a Sleeping Beauty and um, Maleficent is wreaking havoc in the city, and then the good king returns and establishes peace, harmony, and anything that doesn't correspond to the goodness then is exiled out of the city. And it, it, act, it, it's, it really is good news. And I think th the story of humanity as a whole. I mean, the biggest things you, the modern mind thinks of are things like the Holocaust, but that is one instance of many in the modern era, just Pol Pot in Cambodia. You think of uh, uh, Unit 731. You just think of these places where horrific, torturous genocides took place, not for one or two people, millions upon millions of people. And for me, I don't know if I can worship a God that allows people to do that, who never truly own up to it and repent to just get away with it. So getting back to that sort of goodness of God, it's easy for, for me when I have a very good life to be like, oh, I can't believe in this, this God who would finally let his justice rain down. But when you're on the other side of oppression, when you're on the, the underside of the evil empire, of the evil kingdom, 
man, you're longing for the day for the good king to come and slay the dragon. And I brought that up because I know your story and you've spent a lot of time studying genocide, war, torture, and just the, the evil side of humanity. And that is all bound up with this. I mean, the, the people who wrote the Bible weren't, they're not like us. They didn't have HD TVs and iPhones. They know what it's like to be under the burden of an evil empire. Mm, totally. Yeah. You know, well, two things, you mentioned the, the fairy tale and I totally agree. Like I, you know, I, I read uh, with my kids at night before they go to bed and we read a number of stories. I share you know, a few examples in the book, but some stories like fairy tales where you get to the point of the good king returning, you know, or, or things like that where goodness is being reestablished back at the center of the story. And your kids are like, stoked i mean they're just like don't let the bad powers back in don't compromise with evil like it, it, when when the bad guys are like well come on let's work out a compromise let's try and just let it and they're like no no you know they don't want to see the good king and the goodness of the kingdom compromised with the power of evil. they want to see it pushed out god is going to establish re-establish goodness at the center of his world that's a good thing and it's a good thing that he doesn't compromise with evil, you know, and he's the good news, too, is he's for us. If we're willing to receive his mercy, um, one of the ways I put it in the book is Jesus question to us is not, hey, are you good enough to get into my kingdom? His question is, will you let me heal you? And, and I remember that striking me years ago. I had this image of like my grandmother, who's like sweetest person in the world, wouldn't hurt a fly and standing next to Pol Pot architect of the Cambodian genocide and worked a lot in Cambodia there, you know, and just seeing that picture of Jesus talking to my grandma and Pol Pot. And his question is not which one of you is good enough to get in, which one of you is better. His question is, will you let me heal you? And the scandal of that question is Pol Pot could say yes. And my grandma could say no, right? Like, like there's a, it levels the playing field at some level, you know, grace levels the playing field. It's not who's good enough to get in, you know? And yet, it also means someone like Pol Pot, whoever has got to go, has to be willing to be made fit for the kingdom. And if we cling to our sin, to our pride, to our autonomy, to those very root, the very root of those things that are tearing our world apart that we see on the news every day today, you know, if we cling to those things, if we refuse the healing that God has brought us in Christ, um, then it's fitting and appropriate that God's goodness would protect the goodness of his kingdom by containing the destructive power of our unrepentant sin. As I talk to people in our church, and in particular young people, um, I was just telling Isaac I had a conversation with a college, uh, a college student very recently about something similar, and the tension always seems to arise. Um, you said this, Josh, just a moment ago. Just you kind of slipped it in. M- maybe it was you, Isaac. One of you talked about our autonomy, that we have to let go of our autonomy, and. That sounds so counterintuitive to the modern Western mind that um, we are a people who are all about establishing our own kingdoms. And at a certain point, uh, the giant hurdle really, it feels like to me, the giant hurdle to overcome isn't the hurdle necessarily primarily of hell, but even before that, the hurdle is do I actually believe that I am able to establish a kingdom that leads to true, deep human flourishing, not just for myself, but for all people? And human history has proven time and time again that we are unable and are therefore in need of a king who is able that can usher in that kingdom. And bringing it back to hell, Josh, you talk a lot about this in the book, and I'd love to hear you talk about it a little bit more here. God, our king, is in the business of doing that, that his purpose is to usher in his kingdom, which is designed and meant for complete human flourishing. And any good king, just like you're saying, Isaac, who is going to bring about his kingdom, it means that that king then must erase and eliminate that which works against human flourishing. Um, You have some great stuff in your book about you use the motif of the city walls and driving out um, the stuff that works against human flourishing and how that gives us an image of hell. I'd love to hear you... um, Expound on that idea a little bit more. Yeah, totally. So the, uh, well, you mentioned the whole issue of autonomy, and I agree. One of the 
chief metaphors too that I use in the book, kind of a chief gospel metaphor is uh, just the image of, of a wedding and of union and how God's invitation in the gospel is really uh, to become the bride, to be united to him at the cross. It's sort of God's proposal, right? Where God takes on all of our sin, our suffering, our shame, all that upon himself in vicarious humanity of Christ and offers to us to, um, you know, he takes all of our junk and offers us all the glory of who he is to be bound in union with him as his people. Uh, but the the autonomy piece, you know, I think the challenge I, I described, what does it look like to say yes to the wedding proposal? Because that's really the solution to hell, right? We're talking about hell, the solution. If the if hell at its root is distance from the glory and goodness and presence of God, um, then the solution is union and intimacy with the, the presence of God. And so what does it mean to say yes? And and I think saying yes, the wedding proposal is kind of the, the easiest thing in the world, and it's the hardest thing in the world, right? Like union with God, union with Christ is the easiest thing and the hardest thing in the world. It's the easiest thing in the world because it's free, right? It, do, it doesn't cost us anything. Jesus has paid the price. It, God's arms are wide open. All we have to do is say yes and receive, you know? Um, and so it's the easiest thing in the world. But I'd also say it's the hardest thing in the world because it costs us everything, right? Like on the one hand, it costs nothing, but from another angle, it costs us everything. It means letting go of my independence, my pride, my autonomy. Like I'm trading my autonomy for union. I'm trading my, I get to determine my own life. It's so my own course to bending my knee to him as king. And the image of salvation in scripture, it's ultimately, it's being indwelt with the very spirit of God, like God putting his presence within us. And being united in the spirit to Christ and then through Christ being brought into the home of the father. And so there's this sense of the, the solution is union with the very life of God. I'm just the normal person listening in and I'm going, okay, I'm, I'm with everyone so far. I actually like this idea. I could see how human beings do a bunch of evil um, and God is a good God all of the time. So he's going to drive evil out. But then I'm going, okay, I'll give you that. But... There's one thing to to drive out the evil dragon from the city and then to throw people into a place where there's eternal conscious torment forever and ever and ever. So the average person, I think what we're saying so far resonates and we all want that, but we have a picture in our head simultaneously that is like this divine torture chamber that mm. that is ran by satan sometimes and he's out there just mm. torturing all of the people for all eternity so um or that god's locked it up and he's holding the key and just kind of waving it at you like laughing at you yeah, yeah, yeah you're never Ma- gonna get out this the soldier mm-hmm. with like the 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 pirate in the in, in the you know locked in yeah. the cave type of thing and you're just waiting for a way to break free so how does all of this stuff as we reshape the biblical story or not reshape, we try to discover the original shape of the biblical story. How, how does that play in? Because the modern the modern person has a problem in their gut with mm. the idea of God just then letting people burn in the flames for all eternity. Mm. Yeah. Great. So uh, three kind of quick thoughts. In the, the book, one of the things I use is, you know, I'd say the caricature many of us have is that hell is like an underground torture chamber, right? Like it's location. And one of the things I try and show is that um, in the Bible, in the New Testament in particular, that A, hell's location is not underground, uh, B, that its purpose is not torture, and C, that its construction is not a chamber. And we've already talked a bit about how it's not underground. It's actually outside the city, the Gehenna imagery. It's, it's uh, outside the city, which is good. It's a narrative of the good king redeeming the city, establishing his kingdom, pushing the drunk outside. Um, but a lot of what you spoke to hits on the next two. And going, God's purpose is not torture. I'd say it's protection. That ultimately God is protecting the goodness of the kingdom by containing the destructive power of unrepentant sin. I think the image that many have of torture is wrong. Like it's not, uh, I, I would say there is a distinction between torture and torment, you know? So I look in the book at how I kind of explore it in Jesus's uh, teaching on Lazarus and the rich man, which is one of the two key passages that's usually used to support the torture chamber idea. And um, torture is, uh, you know, it can be like inflicted on you from the outside in a uh, torment arises more from the inside out right so someone can hit me over the head with a two by four you know or i can wake up and, and that, hit me over the head with the two by four as a form of torture or i could wake up with in the morning with a headache that's tormenting me that would be a torment right like i'm tormented by this headache 
And so I, I believe what we see in the biblical storyline is that if we resist and refuse and reject God's grace, if we cling to our pride and our sin and our autonomy and those things, that it has a corrupting effect on our personhood, that um, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And so the reality, I think, of God handing us over to our sin and uh, actively judging our sin, calling it what it is, or revealing what it is, um, that there is a torment that arises from a corrupted existence characterized by our sin. And that that is a scary reality, right? But the scariness of it arises not because God has a mean, vindictive, dark side. Uh, The scariness arises because of the wickedness that is in us when it comes face to face with the glorious goodness of who God is. Um, I love this C.S. Lewis quote. It's to the effect of like, a lot of us uh, talk or act as if encountering the goodness of God would be fun. <laughs> but if we really get the, the kind of the, the weighty, meaty, whatever, I don't know what words he uses, I can't remember, but it was just like, it would, if, if we really understood the weight of glory and the significance of God's goodness, and how it exposes the corruption within us actually coming face to face with the goodness of God should probably put some holy trembling or our knees start shaking, you know? Yeah. And so I, I don't, one of the things I don't want to communicate, I don't want to come across as saying like, ah, hell's not a big deal. It's not that bad. It's not, you know, um, no, I think it should scare the hell out of you. But I love there's a Tim Keller. I heard a sermon once who was saying like, um, you know, people often ask me, do you think the flames of hell, are they literal or a metaphor? And he said, you know, oh, well, I think they're a metaphor. And, um, and people will usually kind of wipe the sweat from their brow. Like, oh, thank goodness. You know, and then I'll follow it up with, uh, I think they're a metaphor for something much worse, <laughs> you know, and like, oh no, you know, like, like, but just that sense of like, um, it's not saying that it's not gnarly or bad, uh, but it's 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 trying to address where the gnarliness and badness comes from and going, it's not because of God has a dark side, it's God's goodness, his life, light, and love coming face to face with the corruption that's in, in us. And that for me, it's it still says there's something rightly scary about hell, you know, and yet God is the solution rather than the problem. There's uh, those images in the Bible. So the, the, absolute, the reason why we know they're metaphoric is because they, they, they can't logically cohere with themselves. So the Bible in one sense will say hell is complete utter darkness and it'll be a place of fire in, the, in, in, in another verse. And so you can't have the, the earthly image of fire and the earthly image of complete absolute. So, so what they're doing though is they're picking the worst images of their day and the worst image of their day was specifically Gehenna um, and applying it to this reality that's outside of the kingdom. And I think what's probably important for us to to reflect on is, as you said, it's not that God has set up this systematic torture chamber, but when the goodness of God is removed from a place, that place is going to be like utter darkness, like fire. And if you want just a glimpse of that, you can just look at the worst times of human history where we've had good people even in the midst of evil and seen just what human beings are capable of doing to one another. So in no way do we diminish the the horror of hell, but we need to reframe it as, yeah, if you refuse to worship this good king who's created a good world, not only for you, but for all people, then there is a place for people like you. Um, and you don't have to love him. You don't have to worship him. You don't have to serve him. And there's this Gehenna image. Yeah, and I think you mentioned some of those images like fire, darkness, and weeping and gnashing of teeth are some of the key ones. And if you think about what are those pictures, it, 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 I think it's helpful too if you try and step back into an ancient mindset, you know, outside of pre-modern technology, whatever we live in today. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's it's it, it would just be kind of fairly obvious, like fire... It's very, I mean, it has some good purposes to keep you warm and all, but there's also this is like it's a destructive force, right? Like it takes um, God's good creation and burns it down. And so I think there's a strong picture there uh, of the reality of sin. Like when we're given order to the reality of sin, like it, it can burn down our families, it can burn down our communities, it can burn down our lives. I just think as a pastor this last few months and just seeing a number of uh, the affair that the husband has on his wife or the abuse that someone has on their kid, you know, or some of those things that um, 
we often don't think of the language of hell when we're talking about those things, but the reality is like, that's like a flame that tears down a family. It tears down the health of a child that tears down a community. Um, and I think for the biblical worldview or mindset, it's kind of going, dude, when we see those things, those are, those are the kind of areas that we should go do. We're seeing the power of hell at work in our world, but God's going to judge it to set things right. And then I think the image of darkness, you know, you think it's, it's, it's the absence of light and God is light. He's <laughs> good. You know, um, and you think back in the day, like if you're in the city or you're in the village or you're in the place, like in, inside the community, you know, that's where like there's light and laughter and presence and people and all that. Uh, but to be in the darkness is kind of be out on the outskirts, the periphery. I think it's kind of got those associations of exile again, of kind of being outside the pale. And weeping and gnashing of teeth. I used to think of that as like, man, are like angels whipping people outside the gates? So, you know, and going, no, it's, uh, you know, you actually look at it in context and you see these images where, uh, I think it's a picture of loss, people lamenting and grieving. They've invested their lives in riches or in greed or in status or whatever else. And when then those idols get taken away, it's like the dude who's all his identity is wrapped up in the Porsche and then his Porsche or his Ferrari gets like in a rack or blown up and he's just, ah, you know, yeah, he's yeah. weeping and gnashing his teeth, lamenting that that which he loves has been lost or taken away. So I think they're all sort of images of like the destructive impact that sin has on our lives and on our world. Um, Josh, as we sort of, we have a lot of people who are listening who are young people, high school students, college students, and 20-somethings who maybe grew up either with similar caricatures that many of us grew up with of hell that we've spent such good time sort of deconstructing here that you do more thoroughly in your book. Um, you're not only a writer and a brilliant thinker and theologian, you're also a pastor. You've mentioned that a few times. And for Isaac and I, having gotten to know you over the last few years, what shines brighter than just your theological brilliance, actually, that we've gotten to experience just over food and drink together several times is your heart and compassion. This isn't just mechanical for you. I know that um, very much so. You talk actually quite a bit about your own personal stories with people in, in both of your books. Um, maybe maybe share a few words of encouragement pastorally. Um, speak into our confusion and our anxiety. There's a lot of anxiety about hell, you know, when we think about it. Um, speak into our anxiety and our fear and confusion um, on a pastoral level, um, because at one, it'll help us listening, but it'll also help so many listening who are church leaders that are trying to navigate um, and help serve and lead their communities through some of these some of these tensions as well. So what would you say just pastorally um, to those who are wrestling with these questions about hell? Yeah, you know, the first thing I'd say is that we can rest and take confidence in the goodness of God, that if there's any deepest hope for me in this stuff, it's, it's that we can kind of face the scary stuff head on and come out the other side, really realizing God's goodness is central, even in, even in these places, even in these topics, conversations that really we can take confidence in the character of who Jesus is and the, his love, his goodness. We can be secure in that. Uh, I think another piece would just be, I think a lot, often when, when these kind of conversations come up, people, I think, feel afraid they're not going to have the right answer you know my friend or my family member someone's like how can you believe in a god who this this, this another piece of encouragement would be i mean we've been talking about some concepts here that hopefully can help but uh another encouragement would be you don't have to be the answer person who's got it all figured out um i found that often the most constructive thing you can do if you know friends who are skeptical or whatever are coming at you with it is just to ask lots of questions you know rather than feeling like we got to convinced with some answers. So I found often, you know, if people are like, how can you believe a God who hell, da, 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 you know, one of my first questions is usually, well, describe to me what, what's your picture of what hell is? What, what do you think the Christian teaching on hell is? Or what does it look like? And often, you know, once people describe their picture imagery, I'm able to go, well, I don't believe in that either. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, you know, like there's often kind of that work of deconstruction that has to be done first. And but more so that people are, feel listened to and heard with some of the concerns they have, and that you can even identify with some of those those concerns. Um, but then, if there is the chance to to share, you know, like if, if people are interested to actually hear what you want, you know, what you'd want to say or how you see it, the simplicity for me is going. God is good. I believe that Jesus is God come to us to reconcile us, to redeem us, to restore us. That God's 
on a mission to establish his kingdom in the world, to reestablish his goodness in the world. And the reality is we've jacked up our world pretty deep. <laughs> There's yeah. a lot of junk. And so if we're, you know, I, I think the invitation is to receive God's mercy and allow him to begin shaping us and making us fit for his kingdom. And there is reality. If we refuse that goodness, we refuse that. If we cling to the stuff that's tearing apart, our world is rooted in us. And if we refuse to let God deal with that, then yeah, that, that's kind of scary for God. God's goodness established in the world that, that confronts us. Um, but the good news is that he's for us. And the question isn't so much whether or not God wants to be with us. It's whether we want to be with God. If we stay kind of stuck in our resistance, then then we got to deal with that. <laughs> God. But uh, that, that we can just kind of land with the simplicity of the story is one in which God has come in to reestablish his good kingdom in the world. And he invites us to be made fit for that coming kingdom. Yeah. Hey, Josh, um, I know this is just a, you know, 30, 45 minute conversation and I'm sure people have way more questions and, um, at the regeneration project and the regeneration podcast, we can't recommend your work enough. So tell people a little bit about how they can stay connected to you, maybe your website as well as, um, you've got a couple of books. We've talked about just one of them today, but, um, tell people how they can stay, stay connected with you. Yeah, totally. I'm on Twitter at, at Butler Josh. Um, on Facebook, it's my name. Uh, I got a website, uh, joshuaryanbutler.com. It's just kind of my full name.com. And uh, the two books are The Skeletons in God's Closet, we talked about. It, it also gets into the topics of uh, judgment and holy war, kind of what's going on with Old Testament violence and warfare, Israel, Canaan kind of stuff, and uh, judgment, um, how, final judgment. How do we, how, how do we, understand that with the goodness of God. Uh, that's the skeletons book. The second book is called the pursuing God. And that's essentially how it's not about us going out to find God. It's God coming to find us. Uh, if people are interested, definitely feel free to check those out. Both books have been phenomenal. I've shared skeletons with, I don't know how many people. Tons of people yeah. And uh, I remember reading pursuing God in my office. I, um, I got a copy of it when it first came out. And I think I texted you, Josh, cause I was Balling my eyes out at that one That's story. The gospel, man. Yes, <laughs> that was my goal. <laughs> it was just such a beautiful story. Of well, I don't want to give the story away, but your friends and their foster parents, and it's just this yeah. beautiful, incredible image of God's love for us. Just amazing. So, anyways, we can't recommend your stuff enough, Josh. You've been an incredible partner with us at the Regeneration Project, and um, you've been such a support, and we're such huge fans of yours and we we so incredibly appreciate not just you as a person but um, also the work you're doing to really truly change the paradigm and offer really in, in a profound way offer hope um, with topics that have been so long misunderstood and have caused so much anxiety and fear in so many people and um yeah you're you're a gift so thank you so much thanks you guys yeah, i love regeneration project and so grateful for you guys and the work that you're doing so thanks man josh butler is a, is a good friend has been very supportive of regen and we just we just love his work as you said and so kind of maybe to summarize all those different things because if you're just trying to jump into this there's so many different words and, and almost like vocabulary you need to know we mentioned exile and functionally different equal opposites but kind of to succinctly state where we've gone is that hell is not the 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 systematic torture chamber where, where people go if they misbehave. Right. The Bible presents heaven and earth as the, the, the pair, the husband and wife, if you will. And then there's this invader, this intruder. Um, it appears first as, as the serpent in, in the creation account, but then as, as sin enters into the world, it spirals out of control and wreaks havoc upon God's good order. And so the biblical vision for the future is a vision that says one day, there is a good king, a good God, who's going to come and restore peace and harmony. And the Bible ends with this beautiful, um, b these beautiful words saying, "There's going to come a day where th there'll be no more tears, no more, no more hunger, no more war, no more children not having enough to eat." And and that's something that that we long for. And God one day is going to do that. And then anyone who refuses to, to bow the knee to the good king and, and the good kingdom that he wants to establish, there is going to be an exile. There's going to be a kicking out of the Garden of Eden, uh, a kicking out of 
the city of God. And that place is called Gehenna in the scriptures. And it's a place where human rebellion is quarantined and isolated. Human rebellion will no longer have the power to wreak havoc on God's good creation. Now, outside of that, you can take all kinds of different views on hell, what exactly it's like. The scripture doesn't present us in fine detail, but we know it's a place where human evil is quarantined and wrongs are righted and God justice is served for eternity. Yeah, essentially that at the end of the story, everybody gets what they want. If you want God and human flourishing, you can have him. Yeah. Um, but if you want something else, you can have that too. And um, yeah, it's, you know, our hope at the Regeneration Podcast is obviously always that this is first word and not the last word. Mm. Um, so that's why we get these conversations started. But we also know that, man, in a 45-minute conversation, it's not possible to, to do such a difficult and complex topic like hell um, enough. It, it's, it's difficult to do it justice. So, again, this is a first word. We hope that it was a paradigm shift for you, like Josh mentioned um, you know, there, there are resources on his website, Joshua Ryan Butler. Um, and we also uh, always want to mention that um, the Regeneration Project is uh, in partnership with Western Seminary. And so we want to thank Western Seminary for all of their support um, of the Regeneration Project and now this podcast. Um, and uh, for all of you, we say this all the time, but we want this to be as much dialogue as possible and not just monologue. So uh, if you have any thoughts, questions, ideas, um, maybe even ideas for topics or guests or um, maybe a church that you know of that's doing some amazing things to reach new generations and younger generations, you can um, send that to us and begin con- contacting us and, and conversations with us by emailing us at podcast at regenerationproject.org. And uh, we, we post show notes for all of our shows, different things that we talked about on the show um, at our website, regenerationproject.org. And you can find us and connect with us on all the social media stuff, uh, Twitter and Instagram. Um, I'm sorry, Twitter and Facebook. We are uh, R-Gen Project, R-G-E-N Project. And Instagram is the full phrase Regeneration Project. So thank you guys so much for listening. Keep listening. And we will talk to you all soon.